Where is Zion? The city of the great king. Is it a geographical location? Is it a uh, a spiritual reference? Jerusalem for a geographical location. Within within Jerusalem, there are um, a couple of high places. Um, One of the high places is where the Temple Mount is. And some people would, when they would read Mount Zion, they would associate that with the Temple Mount. But there's another area that is a high area where uh, Jesus actually had the Last Supper, um, probably in Barnabas's house or Barnabas's relatives there in Jerusalem, which is a, kind of an adjacent high area. It was within the walled city at that point, uh, Mount Zion, which is where when we go to Israel next spring, we'll actually um, have part of our studies there at the uh, Institute for uh, Holy Land Studies, which is now called uh, Jerusalem University College, JUC. It's actually part of the old, uh, you can actually see part of the old wall as part of the construction there. So that would be Mount Zion. But it also has a spiritual reference, right? Thinking of the end times when the city of God actually dwells among men. We read about that in Revelation, um, where there's a new heaven and a new earth, and, and the uh, God's creation uh, in humanity dwells with him, and he is the light of that place. And that, so you see both actually um, alluded to here. It's the city of the great king. And so we look forward to that city of God, just like Abraham looked forward to that city of God. We look forward to that city of God, and that gives us hope. You know, it says, We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. So what is the temple about? Remember from past studies? What's the temple about? Right. It's the place where, where we come into the presence of God. And that that's mediated through the high priest. And who's our high priest as Christians? Jesus. Jesus. You read about that in Hebrews. So you, you can read. Uh, I, was, I was in my studies this morning. I was looking at um, what some people consider uh, the great uh, foundations of our faith. And they listed Psalms, Romans, um, and Ephesians. So looking at two of the letters of Paul uh, and then the Gospels. Right, and so they're they're looking at that as the foundations of our faith. So in Old Testament, the Psalms tell us both about history, um, present state, and a future uh, expectation of dwelling with God. So that's a great psalm. Thank you. If you just take the very first phrase, mm-hmm. which is "Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised," and the very last phrase, "He will guide us until death." Yep, that's pretty powerful. <laughs> and and um, so we have we uh, it is very powerful. We have a, a friend that's going through a, a trial of faith right now. We all we all have these kind of episodes in our lives. So if you have this kind of an episode, don't think that you're unique. Um, but uh, the trial of faith is questioning one: is God real in the sense of being a person? I mean, a lot of people will say, yeah, there's a divine force. There seems to be a creative intelligence or an intelligent designer. Um, but that doesn't necessarily describe that to a person. And I think you can get that from general revelation. right? So a lot of people will acknowledge that. But is, is God personal? And um, if he is, if he's real, um, is he good? And can he be trusted? Right? So we have a friend that's going through a crisis of faith, and it's important when you read "Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised." It's speaking about not an impersonal force; it's not Star Wars, but one who will walk with you and talk with you and guide your way, right? And that we get in the last verse, as Tim pointed out, He will guide us until death, and that I can't think of anything more important. When you look at all the things that we struggle for in life, uh, we certainly want to struggle for that close relationship with the Lord as, as premier.
I think it's interesting that uh, in Hebrews 12, Mount Zion is set as a contrast to Moses meeting with God at the mountain. So he just trembled like crazy. Right. And then the writer says, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the, new, right. the heavenly Jerusalem. Right. And that's that, that allusion to that end time, the city that, of God. Yeah, that, but that personal contact, Moses yes. spoke to God face to face and he trembled. Yes. And, and that would be the universal human response today in our sinfulness. To come into the presence of God, we would be destroyed because of our, our you know, Isaiah said, woe is me, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips. Um, so, at, at one point, we'll be able to actually dwell with God in his presence, and, and it'll be a place of rejoicing rather than a place of trembling, but with reverential fear always, right? We understand that. And those are things that, you know, we understand the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? So we need to wrestle. What does that mean? Um, and so that's some of the things that we're wrestling with this morning. So <coughs> we're actually uh, starting our study in the book of Ephesians. And I asked you to read it through um, several times. How many read through Ephesians this week? That's okay. I'm glad to see I don't want to embarrass anybody if you didn't read through Ephesians. Um, last week I uh, before last week I'd ask you to read it through uh, at least a couple of times it's a short letter and I asked you to look for um, what kinds of uh, questions you would ask right? who, what, why, when where um, and so we and specifically to look at the who and um, the why I can't remember the the other interrogative I actually look at, but we, last week we kind of unpacked those a little bit. Who wrote uh, Ephesians and who was it written to? Paul Ephesians. Pardon? Paul. Paul? To the Ephesians. And where would, where would you get that information internally? Actually, to the Ephesians. And to our faithful. Yes. So there's this that actually links us. <laughs> yep. So in the very first verse, you have internal evidence that this is written by Paul. You also have internal evidence, um, like in chapter 3, first verse, for this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So you see um, who the author is, or at least the stated author is, of Ephesians. Um, and you see who the intended audience is. Um, it's a specific group. If you take the version that shows up in our, our canon of Bible, uh, that specific group would be uh, the Ephesians, those who are at Ephesus. Um, but in the, I mentioned last week, in the uh, earliest manuscripts, that is missing. So uh, there's lots of speculation about this letter. Most of the speculation about the who, who wrote it, and who it's written to, has come about in the last 200 years. So it's interesting, as the modern era has, has progressed, that um, we've taken biblical criticism to the point where we can take apart the Bible um, and actually take it apart to the point where nobody believes it. They can take parts out they don't like and put parts in that they do like um, through eisegesis, through injecting their own theology. And what we want to do is we want to understand a biblical theology. Right? We want to understand what the Bible tells us. The other thing about who is it to, actually from verse, well, chapter 3, verse 1, and, and throughout 2, mm-hmm. it really appears to be written to Gentiles. That's correct. More so, than you, the Gentiles, and the blessed. Mm-hmm. So that's probably us again. That it is us again. So the word Gentiles is the word that we get ethnic from, ethnos. Um, it sometimes is translated the nations. Um, basically, it's everybody uh, in the world who is, yeah, except for those that were specifically called out, uh, which was the sons of Israel, the tribes of Israel. Um, and But we understand that that 
the promise was given not just to the sons of Israel. They had a specific uh, job or role in God's um, salvation of the world. And what was that role to be? What was the role of the, the, the nation of Israel? Priests. That's right. They're to be a nation of priests. And what what does a priest do? What is the what is the function Intercessor. of the priest? Pardon? Uh, yeah. Intercessor. That's right. Intercessor. There, he brings the people, both um, the uh, repentant um, cry of the people to God uh, for God's forgiveness and God's uh, remediation, and that they do that through sacrifice. That that's the, the role of the priest is to bring the people's um, sacrifice before God. And the role of the prophet is to bring the revelation of God to the people. Right? We have a third um, role within uh, the, the, uh, the plan of God in redemption, and that is the king also. So we have the prophet, the priest, and the king. And so you've You'll hear me as I teach on different things. I'll be focusing on what what uh, specific aspect that we're looking at. Are we looking at the priestly functions, the prophetic functions, or the kingly functions, right? So when we went through Samuel, we were looking at the role of the king, and uh, specifically one king, right? So we understand that God is the king, right? That we... Uh, exist in his kingdom or outside of his kingdom as citizens right and if you're outside of his kingdom you're not a citizen if you're inside his kingdom you are a citizen and so um, what God's concern is is that there are those that were uh, removed their citizenship was lost and he wants to redeem those people to be grafted in back in to his kingdom and so uh, we understand that, that the king is God, but that the way that that occurs um, because of our sinful nature is that we're very reliant upon the role of the prophet and the priest and the king. The prophet to bring that revelation of God to us about who he is, his person, his character, his nature, um, what his purpose and plan is, right? And what our obligation that's created as a result of that revelation is. So that's the, what the prophet does. And then the priest intercedes. And that's, that's we understand that there was a nation that was chosen to be uh, a nation of priests, but now we understand from when we look at the letter of 1 Peter that we, when I say we, I speak inclusively of those that have been adopted as sons, the Gentile nation, are now a kingdom of priests. What was uh, stated about Israel is now true about those that are in Christ. Right? And that's one of the things that we see that Paul is going to focus on, is this concept of being in Christ. So when we looked at uh, the themes of uh, Ephesians, we see kind of a, a natural uh, progression in, uh, of the exposition of Paul. That I think the thesis statement uh, is in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, where you read, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And do that with humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So we understand that there is an obligation created as a result of the revelation of God. Obligation uh, in order to be in communion with him. When he reveals who he is, that uh, impacts us and affects us of how we're going to relate to him. Now, that relationship requirement is there without the revelation. That's why if people don't have the revelation, they're still as much lost as if they have the revelation and don't choose to believe it and embrace it. Right? That's just the nature of, of how God is and how his creation works. So we want to understand God, and, and that's what the first part of Ephesians is about. 
It's about knowing your position in Christ. It's about identity. And once you know that identity and the calling that results from that, um, we are to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. So we're to walk as children of light. So Paul, in expounding what that means of how now shall we live in light of this revelation, um, it should impact our behavior. It should impact our thinking. Um, and that's why when we start with like Psalm 48, the bottom line is, is that God is with us and he will guide us every day of our life, every moment that we have, every thought that we think. He knows before it's you know, traversed across our brain, every word that we're going to speak, he knows before it comes off our tongue. He's that close to us, that personal with us. And um, that needs to uh, impact how we live. We need to be making choices in accord with that. We need to walk as children of light. And finally, Paul acknowledges the, the great struggle that we have, that um, what's going on in the world, even though we've been rescued from it, we've been freed from the snare, right? Nonetheless, that battle is still going on, and that you're here today is evidence that God is not done yet. One, he's not done with the work that he's doing in your life and helping you to walk in the light. But he's also not done in that battle. That There are many that don't even know, have never heard the revelation. They don't know their identity or, or ability to be a child of God. And they don't know what he's done for them, right? So part of our, what we do in our walk, which people are always watching, everybody's watching, that make you feel comfortable? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and not only that, when you think you're completely alone, you're not. God's watching. Right? And that's your time of uh, personal communion with Him, that private time. And that um, if you're in accord with Him, not ignoring Him, you'll hear the, that soft, gentle voice that helps uh, craft your waking hours, that is your guidance. We understand the Spirit of God is active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? And that that is alive in our lives. So um, the whole point is that I was trying to make there is that we are still engaged in that battle. We still have an active enemy who's trying to take us out. He's trying to blind us. He's trying to uh, discourage us. He's trying to kill us. It says the thief comes to kill or to steal, kill and destroy. So first he wants to take from you everything that's of value. Then he wants to finally defeat you in, in this world thinking that that's the end. But ultimately he wants to destroy you in your relationship with God. And we need to understand that that battle is going on. And in the final day, we need to stand fast. That's the encouragement that Paul gives. First, know your identity in Christ, then walk as children of light, and finally, stand firm in the spiritual battle, or stand fast. Don't give an inch. And when you're in that place of standing fast, that's when you can look around at the saints that are around you, at the church, which is revealed so clearly in Ephesians, that that is a place of encouragement. So that's the structure of Ephesians, and I, I uh, summarized it a little bit, so I give you some bullet points there. If you look at the organization, an outline would be uh, sit, walk, and stand. You need to sit in the revelation, uh, understanding your position in Christ. You need to walk uh, in the world according to that revelation, and finally you need to stand against the devil. And that um, what we're going to unpack as we move through Ephesians, and it'll take a while to get through Ephesians, I apologize for that, but that's what it's going to be. Um, we're going to get some real training in theology. So Paul wants us to understand, um, because on a rainy day, without good theology, you can easily think that you're going to get swept away. That's not the case. So... So that's where we're at. Um, last week, 
I, in addition to talking about the who, and I'm going to make the statement that Paul wrote this letter. I don't care what they say in the last 200 years. There's 1,800 years of church history that says Paul wrote this letter. Um, and I think the internal evidence shows that. I think the external evidence shows that. The, the arguments against Paul writing it uh, don't stand up uh, against the arguments that Paul did write it. In other words, there may be uh, 5 to 10 percent of the internal evidence that would make you think, well, maybe Paul didn't write this. Um, but 90% says that he does. So I'm going to go with the uh, analogy of faith and, and that this is consistent with God's revelation and certainly uh, Paul's specific writings. <clears throat> and that it was written specifically to a group of people in Ephesus. So when Paul writes something specifically to some people, he always has a purpose. And even if he was writing to a broader audience, he'd still have a purpose. So you need to ask the question, why? Why did Paul write this? So what, were, what would be your ideas for why Paul wrote this? <clears throat> and I'm going to give you a, a little bit of a hint, because we want to understand, what was the occasion that caused Paul to write such a high theological treatise? And it wasn't the same kind of... Uh, Exposition as Romans, it was short and concise and very focused. Um, what what was the occasion? Why did he go to such uh, length to write this letter and to make sure that they got it? Well, the saints who were at Ephesus because they were dispersed. Mm-hmm. You read uh, James. A lot of the epistles they were dispersed. They had a lot of them living in uh, San Francisco, Sin City. Yes. Ephesus, where Diana was, yep. the Artemis. Yep. And, uh, so there was a lot of idol worship all over. And he just wanted to focus, remind them what they had in Christ. Yep. <clears throat> so it's a really good analogy that. Um, so all of these, uh, the early Christian church, where did it start? In Jerusalem, right? That's where we read about um, Jesus ascended. He said, wait for um, the Spirit uh, to come upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, uh, and the, the whole world, right? And so we understand that that's kind of like a, a spiritual explosion going out in that um, the war had been won, but not all the battles had been won. The road decided to shut them down. Right. And in the, in the, in the course of that, as that church is growing and the, the gospel message is being heard and received, and the church is, is uh, the Christian church is growing among the Jews, uh, the Jewish peoples, um, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It makes the leadership of the Jews very uncomfortable, and so they started persecuting um, these people. It also eventually made the Romans uncomfortable, right? Because they could see this as a threat to the Roman state. Now, when Jesus was crucified, um, Pontius Pilate did not acknowledge that he was a threat as a king, right? Because Jesus said, in fact, I was born for this purpose, that I would be a king. But I'm not a threat to your, your kingdom, because my kingdom is a kingdom that, you know, that's the kingdom of God. Right. And so Pontius Pilate, recognizing that Jesus wasn't, he hadn't done anything that was worthy of capital punishment, that he wasn't um, an enemy of the state, basically turned him over, washed his hands. He said, okay, you guys want to crucify him for some religious infraction? That'll be done. But it's not because he was an enemy of the state. And yet, that death that Jesus died was the death of an enemy of the state. Right? Well, they kind of changed their mind as time went on. And they realized that these Christians, as this message got out, that you could be free and have a different allegiance, that your allegiance wouldn't be to uh, the the emperor, right? To Caesar, 
but your allegiance would be to Christ, even though they were model citizens, they were still persecuted for that. But prior to that persecution, there was a persecution within the Jewish faith. The leadership persecuted them, and they um, actually gave papers to Paul, who was Saul at that point, from Tarsus, to go and track these folks down. And we read about that in Acts, right? So the early church is growing, the persecution is happening, the, the, uh, Stephen is martyred, the church is now dispersed, they go to places like Ephesus with the message, and people that were um, Jewish in that area, because Paul and Peter both went first to the Jews, um, some of them heard the message and uh, believed. Some that were Gentiles that were very religious, we call them proselytes. They had adopted the practice of the, of the Jewish people, even though they were Greek. Um, those people heard and believed, but also some that had never had any kind of um, understanding of Judaism or Christianity. They had been uh, pagan idol worshippers and participating in the cultic practice that happened in Ephesus. Right, where you had a, a Greek god, a goddess, that uh, was essentially a fertility god, and uh, this was the center of it, right? So it was all, so you can imagine a fertility god, one of the major uh, religious practices is going to be around perversion of, of uh, sex, right? And that that um, perversion or uh, demeaning of something that God created to be uh, good in marriage was totally uh, reinterpreted. And not to get us off the subject, mm-hmm. Sorry, mm-hmm. but, <laughs> uh, but in background, mm-hmm. okay, the thing that you gave us last week yep. uh, says that Paul uh, first went to Ephesus in the middle of September. That's available here if you don't 52. have one. 52. Okay, this is pretty specific. And that he probably wrote Ephesians in autumn of 60. Correct. And, and yet this book is such a, an amazing uh, overview. Um, and even real specific stuff like husbands, other wives, and wives. Yep. Yeah, I mean, so there had to be some... I don't know if it's persecution or what, but what was the what was going on in sixty? <laughs> well, what was uh, going on in sixty? That's that's the direction we're moving. Yeah. So we're we're first looking at what happened to Paul. So last week we heard that he got knocked off his horse, mm-hmm. and some would say it was a high horse, some would say it was a low horse. <laughs> Paul wasn't a man of great stature, in, in you know, as far as physical. But he was definitely a mighty, um, mighty lawyer. He was a Jewish lawyer. So, you know, we fear those guys today, right? You go into court against a Jewish lawyer, you, you want to be prepared. Um, because they're going to argue fiercely for their point. That was, that was Paul. He was trained as a rhetorician. He was a Pharisee. Knew the religious law as well as the civil law of the Romans, and he appealed to both, which we read about in Acts. So, as the church is expanding, and they're going to places like Ephesus, and they're going to places like Antioch, and they're going to places like Corinth, right, that that message is going out, the reason it was going out is because they were persecuted, and people were forced to leave. Philip was forced to leave. Peter, at one point, was forced to leave. Um, Barnabas was forced to leave. So Barnabas, originally in Jerusalem, heads up to Antioch. And that's what you read as you go through the, um, the chronology that I gave you. Does everybody have a chronology in here? Okay, so everybody's got one. There's some additional copies up here if you don't. <coughs> what you see is you see that progression from the crucifixion to the early church to the appointment of messengers, apostles, within that early church that were eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses of Christ, eyewitnesses of um, an understanding 
being taught by Christ as to how all of Scripture up to the point of the crucifixion had been foretold and past the crucifixion, that this was about the redemption of the world. And you read about that as it progressed from Jerusalem to Samaria and then to the whole world. Um, what happens is, is that there were appointed uh, apostles to different uh, mission, part of the mission. And Paul was appointed to go to the Gentiles. And you read about that. You read about the conversion of Paul. You read about how he went and got his understanding verified. So he went to the, the leaders within the church in Jerusalem and said, this is what happened to me. Um, this is what I've been teaching. Uh, is this right? You know, Paul wanted to make sure that the revelation that he had been given, and it's very easy to fall into a place of doubt. Just because you have doubt does not mean that you don't have faith. Faith is what you do in the presence of doubt. Right? So Paul was an incredibly um, faithful man. Once he had been um, convicted of his sin and he had repented of that and had given his life wholly to the mission of Christ as Lord, um, he still struggled in this world. And so he went off and he went through a period of uh, training, understanding uh, the scripture anew. Um, and he went and he got that verified by the leaders of the church. And that's what you read about. Is that Paul, um, he makes his first visit, you read about in Acts 9. Paul's in Jerusalem. Um, you read about that he goes off to Tarsus and uh, in Syria area. And then Peter goes off and ministers to the Gentiles. And then Barnabas ends up, this is in Acts 11, in Antioch, right? So you read through that expansion of the church going out. Barnabas gets sent out, and then Paul uh, ends up going to Antioch, right? And what you read about is the growing uh, training and growing ministry of Paul up to the point in April of 48 where the church there in Antioch sends out Paul and Barnabas on their first mission. So you all have seen all have seen uh, maps like this, right? So here is uh, if I can bring this up a little bit here. Grab a flashlight for you. <laughs> And all this has to do with the, the why. Why did Paul write this? Right? So we're trying to answer that question. What was going on that caused Paul to, uh, to write this letter? So we understand that what was going on initially was that people needed to hear the message. And that that, wasn't, that was opposed by the religious leaders. So Paul... Um, was going from Jerusalem down here and he was headed to Damascus up here um, and that's when he got knocked off his horse um, he ended up going to Arabia down here in this area over here um, at one point in time he ended up back in Tarsus which was where his studies were so that's where he got his, his primary education and all of his doctoral studies um, and then he ended up back in, um, I'm not going to see it here very easily, Antioch. And uh, there's a couple of Antiochs, but this is uh, uh, Antioch in uh, the Syrian region. And it was uh, in competition, in a way, for, um, for the, origin, the uh, development of theological understanding with the church down in northern Egypt. Alexandria region. So you're going to see uh, Alexandrian influence at different times. You're going to see uh, Antioch uh, as a, a significant influence in theology, and we'll get into that as we move through. But what happened is, is that Paul ended up here as a result of Barnabas, as part of the dispersion, ended up in this area. Some of them ended up way over here in Ephesus. So who would have ended up in Ephesus, do we know? I heard, I heard somebody say it. 
Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila. And that they went to Corinth, they went to Ephesus. So they were tent makers, they shared a common trade um, with Paul. And uh, at one point they ended up here. And so we understand that as they're going, they're bringing the word out. Um, but essentially Christians that came from this area down here eventually were spreading out. Uh, it was a Christian dispersion, very similar to the diaspora that happened when the Babylonians and the Persians um, conquered um, Jerusalem. And at that point there was a great dispersion. That was the first diaspora. Um, well, there was a similar type thing going on with the Christian church. Paul ends up here. Barnabas uh, had asked for him to come from Tarsus to um, Antioch. And then the church laid hands on them. And this was their first missionary journey. They headed off to Cyprus. And from Cyprus, um, they ended up coming up here to uh, the lower areas. Uh, they were headed for Galatia. And so this was their point of entry. Um, they ended up uh, climbing this very steep pass and coming up to another Antioch and then they went to uh, different towns in here Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and you read about that in the book of Acts that was their first trip they ended up coming back and sailing back and ending up back at, at Antioch um, what do you know about that missionary journey? so I, I listed here if you look at the chronology, this isn't my listing, this is Harold Honer's. Um, on page two, you see first missionary journey, you read about in Acts uh, 13, 14, took place from April 48 to September 49, so uh, not quite a year and a half. They uh, departed from Antioch, went to Cyprus, went to uh, Panthila, right? They ended up from there um, going to Pisidian Antioch, and then they went to Iconium, Lystra, Derby. They returned to visit. So they, as they were going, they're sharing uh, the gospel message. Churches are being started. And these churches were not like we build a church today where you have to put up walls and a roof and stuff like that. They happened in people's houses. So they visited these churches that in people's houses that had grown. And then they headed back. Um, we see return um, to Antioch of Syria in September 49. What happened in that first missionary journey? Why did they go? What happened? And what, what was the long-term result? Well, I don't have the answer to that. But uh, when you're traveling like that, mm -hmm. I mean, for us nowadays, to travel those distance, walk that distance, and the uh, were these shipping lanes, and was there a lot of trade between all these cities that he went to in order for him to go to those places? I mean, you know, if the church was dispersed, was there commercial travel routes in order for them to go to these places, or were they just like the refugees from Syria today? Right. I mean, they're just going to they're flooding they're the border. Border. They just want to get out of town. Yeah. So it was it was different than I mean that when there was uh, you know when they're chasing you with the sword, you just want to get out of town. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what's happening today in Syria. Right. That um, if you're not of that particular uh, fanatical uh, Muslim sect, then your life, including if you're Muslim, um, yeah. is forfeit, and so you run. Right? You go anywhere you can to get out. That wasn't so much. I'm sure there was some of that in Jerusalem, and we read about that. Um, but it was uh, more the latter, where they were looking where they might have relatives. They were looking where they might be able to go and get a job. They were looking at how they could work on the way. So might take a job uh, in the shipping lanes out of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, might take a job in the shipping lanes out of uh, the port city outside of, of Antioch. Um, and Cyprus was one of the areas that they would do trade with. Um, this whole area up here, they're going to get up into, uh, into this, this sea here and, and hit all these areas along Ephesus. Uh, we're going to see Athens. We're going to see uh, Thessalonica, the Macedonian uh, cities. 
uh, all the way down into Greece and Corinth and that. So that was the major areas that they would have all been, you know, port towns. Like, what do we know about Corinth? It was sailor town, right? You know, that was a major area where they would bring in um, freight and then they would move it to different places within the, the Grecian Peninsula. And so the same thing was happening here with the dispersion. They were primarily following um, the trade routes, trying to find a place of refuge where they could get a job. Right? They have to live. And you can't be on the run and hide out forever. You have to be able to feed yourself and your family. You have to be able to work. And so they needed to find a place where they could get a job in whatever city they ended up in. And granted, they were most of them weren't Roman citizens, um, so they didn't have that privilege, right? So they were coming in as, as servants, slaves, and so that's why Christianity spread a lot through that people group first. It didn't necessarily touch the upper castes or uh, echelons of society. It did through the servants, as they would share with their masters, but it, the masters weren't the ones on the run, right? So it was, that's why you see that phenomenon. And that's kind of why you see the way that the church dispersed in this area um, first. Yeah, that's, that was my main question. Right. And it also went the other direction, too. So um, when they got up into this area, it ended up extending back into Persian. Uh, because a lot of these people had Jewish relatives in Persia. Right? Persia was an area that had the highest concentration Jews in the diaspora because that's where they went. They were carried off into Babylon. They said, hey, make, make uh, families, plant gardens. Right? So that's what they did. And so you had a lot of Jews in that area. And so um, as the church is going, who are they going to first? They're going to their relatives. They're going to their friends. They're going to, to Jews. And that's why the church originally grew up. The Jewish Christians expanded. But then it expanded out. So when Paul got up into this area, and he's following a trade route, but this is a very hard trade route. Um, if you're trying to get up into this upper plateau, um, you have to hike a pretty good um, stretch up the hills. It's not easy. It's hard work. Um, he, at this point in his life, was along in, in age. Um, he wasn't old by any means, but he... Um, you know, gravity rules, and as you get older, it gets harder. Um, so Paul needs some help, and uh, Barnabas is in the same state that Paul's in, so they enlist Barnabas's uh, nephew, guy John Mark, right, and say, hey, John, can you uh, help us with this trip? And he does. He comes to Cyprus, but when they get here, he bugs out. And they're going up that steep hill. And that really ticks Paul off. Um, so he's not happy about that because he gets abandoned. And when Barnabas, we're going to read about later, says, oh, let's, let's get John Mark to help us. And Saul says, let's not. You know? And they actually come to separation of ways over that. But in this first trip, they come up here. The message is received. It's received among both Jews and non-Jews. Some proselytes, they're the first to hear the message, but some non-proselytes. Some that had worshipped idols, and all of a sudden, the true God is presented to them, and they respond to the message. And churches are growing. What happened when he got back here to Antioch? And he tells his story, he says, you won't believe it. The Gentiles are, are believing the message, just like Peter observed with Cornelius. That they're hearing, they're repenting, believing, that we see the evidence of their salvation. You know, just like Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, um, you know, the way that the Spirit works, it's like the wind blowing. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going to, but you see the effect of it. We saw the effect of it. So there was a great report back. And what happened is, is that right after that, the Jewish Christians came in and said, well, yeah, you, you can embrace this faith, but you have, to, you have to become a Jew. And for a Greek, that means, you know, for a Greek male, that means he has to be circumcised. Um, so that's not a happy thing when you're, you know, in your adult years. So um, 
So the idea of becoming a Jew in circumcision and taking on all of the religious burden of the Jews through the various feasts, through the various uh, dietary practices and washing practices and all that stuff that they had been freed from, all of a sudden people were coming in and saying, hey, you got to take this on. And the word reached Paul when he got back here that that's what was going on. So what did Paul do? Right. He said, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not the way freedom in Christ works. You know, I, he had a revelation. He was a Pharisee. He understood. He had had his, his training and message confirmed by the church leaders in Jerusalem. So what did he do? He, he went um, to, the, to Jerusalem. So we read about in Galatians, which is written from Antioch, right? So when he's there, he hears about this, and he hears about Peter also um, being kind of following in some of those uh, missionary footsteps because Peter got kicked out. He, you remember uh, James got beheaded, Peter was in prison, he was miraculously delivered by an angel. Peter had to get out of town too. Where did Peter get out of town to? This area. Right? He ended up in Rome, um, just as Paul did. And so Peter is um, sitting with these new Christians and sharing a meal, and they're all happy in their freedom, slapping each other on the back, and all of a sudden the Judaizers come in, and Peter separates himself. He says, you're unclean. Right? And uh, was doing the very thing that Paul had preached, that no, 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 you're free in Christ. Um, and so Paul wrote the, the letter to the Galatians, and um, then he goes to Jerusalem. This was the third time that he had been to Jerusalem to, to essentially confirm um, his teaching. And we read about that in uh, Acts chapter 15, and James, who was the leader in the church at that point in time, confirmed, along with Peter and the other apostles, the message that Paul was, was teaching to the Gentiles, and that they didn't need to become Jews. The only thing that was asked is that they would, what were the things that were asked? Remember the poor. Right. Repeat that loudly. Yeah. So, what do you say? Yeah. So go to uh, Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. So this is uh, uh, from James. James' judgment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to verse 13. It says, After they had stopped speaking, in other words, the Judaizers brought their case, um, Paul brought his case. Now, I, I can't imagine going up against Paul in an argument, but nonetheless, there were these that were coming up against him. And they both made their case, and uh, after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Uh, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. In other words, the Gentiles were also uh, called to be Christians. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. So he's quoting uh, scripture here um, in, I believe it's in Amos, uh, and that what he's uh, quoting is that, oh, what you're seeing is in fact prophecy fulfilled. Then he goes on, he says, therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication 
and from what is strangled and from blood. And then there's some additional reading and um, so basically he's going to support that statement at that point. So what is he asking them? He's saying pay attention to the idolatry problem because it affects Christians just like it affects the Jews. And that you're living in a culture that is replete with idolatry. They have idols to everything. And when Paul gets to Athens and he's walking around and he sees, my goodness, they're just worshiping everything. In fact, they want to make sure they don't miss one so they have an idol to the unknown God. Right? And then he proclaims uh, Christ to them in that place. But nonetheless, he says, you know, pay attention. Um, Just as the Jews, you uh, abstain from things contaminated by idols. So that means that when they would go into the meat markets and they would take the meat that was sacrificed to the idols, that they would abstain from that because um, what that did was it actually pulled them into idol idol worship. Mm-hmm. Now we read later when Paul clarifies that for the for the Corinthians, he says, you know, this is this is because of the weakness that people have. It's not because there's something wrong with that meat. And if a person is not uh, weak in the faith, and they understand their freedom in Christ, they can freely eat from that meat. But if you have a weaker brother who's going to fall into this idolatry as a result of partaking in this, just don't do it. And that's what James is saying. He's saying abstain from that. And then also pay attention to that which is replete in the culture, which is uh, sexual perversion. Uh, as, as Jack was saying, it's like going to San Francisco, right? Um, where that which God designed to be very good in humanity has been perverted by our enemy to the point of uh, things that are unspeakable, as we read about in Romans chapter 1. That's the way that the culture wants to go. They want to redefine marriage, they want to redefine sexuality. Um, my wife works in Portland Public Schools, and now when students, who are hardly of the age to decide these things, go out and fill out a questionnaire, uh, on their gender they can list, uh, what, what is it uh, they can list? Uh, so they've got... Male, well, uh, male, so female, or other... Other, uh, it's their, unsearching... They're, they're, oh, no, they can say if they're um, straight... Gay, transgender, bisexual, or questioning. Or questioning. So, um, and, and people can now choose their own bathroom in, in the, uh, when you go into a high school in Portland. So depending on how you feel that day, your sexual orientation is, you choose which restroom you're going to use. And that's supported by law. Right? So this is, this is exactly what is being written about in the Bible. Stay away from that. That's the way the world is. You're not of the world. And from what is strangled and from blood. right? And the reason that would be is that there was a practice of drinking blood and certain cultures still have that practice. Um, that the strength of the animal that you have sacrificed uh, is in the blood so you're going to take that. So again it has to do with idolatry um, in participating um, in what we understand was a blood sacrifice for our for our forgiveness, for our new life, that that was done by the high priest. So that's what was going on. So Paul is traveling, he gets back, and I realize I'm out of time, but the first problem of the church was one of internal corruption through religious practice. The second problem of the church is external corruption through the world. And that's what Paul's going to be writing about next as he goes on his second and his third missionary journey journey, because he's now going to go out on his second journey. Looks like this, where um, he goes out this time by land and he heads up, revisits the churches that he went to and he ends up heading out. um, And and this is pretty much where we're going to end today. um, Ends up heading out of a port up here, Troas, ends up up in Macedonia, 
And it's there that he um, has an experience at Philippi that where a church is founded there that uh, is part of the rock of his support in missions. That that church is, even though they're poor, is devoted to supporting the word of God going out into Paul's ministry. And he goes from there to Thessalonica, and he ends up down here in Athens and Corinth. And then he goes over here on his way back, and that's his first exposure uh, in the area of Ephesus. And then heads back, uh, and ends up in Jerusalem, and then heads back. So that's what's going to happen on the second missionary journey. And this is where we're going to end. Um, and that, that's where he runs into not so much the Judaizers, but the problem of corruption in the world. And so when you look at things that were written in his second missionary journey, he visits all these places. First and second Thessalonians is written. Um, and then when he gets to his third missionary journey, where again he leaves, but he ends up spending a bunch of time in Ephesus. And he writes to these areas over here because he's getting report back from these churches just as he got report back from the churches in Galatia about the corruption that was coming from within. He's getting uh, reports back about the uh, corruption of the churches uh, from without. Um, He he writes the Corinthian letters. He writes um, Romans. You read about all, all of the writing that he did. He did a lot of writing there. So that's what's going on. Um, in these missionary journeys. And finally, um, he's going to end up in a prison in Rome, which uh, we'll trace that out next week, and we'll, we'll close here. Um, that would be this one right here, where he ends up going from Jerusalem to Caesarea, where he's in prison for a period of time, ends up um, through uh, misfortune, getting shipwrecked, ends up in Rome... And from there, he's actually on trial. He actually is on trial here in Jerusalem, and that's what starts this whole thing. And so you read about all this in Acts, and what we're going to look at is when Ephesians was written, what was the problem that he's writing to? Because that should inform us about what the content of Ephesians is. And what you'll see is that um, Ephesians is written during uh, his first imprisonment in Rome. So if you go to page 3, you'll see that, and this is in Acts 28, in February uh, through March of 62, he's imprisoned. The fall of 60 is most likely when this was written to the Ephesians. So he's now started in 48, now in 60. So you can just do the math, how many years are there, how many trips are there, how the world was changing as a result of what he was doing, what was the problem? Why did he write this? You know, he's, he's within the window where he's going to be subsequently re-imprisoned and executed for his faith. And then Peter's also going to be. So we saw first a dispersion as a result of persecution from the Jews. Now we're going to see a persecution as a result from the Romans that that's what's going to happen next. And all of this is coupled with the the culture and what's going on in the culture. And then we want to eventually look at now how shall we live. And it's it's generalized not just to the Ephesians, but to the Gentiles. How now shall we live? What are we going to get from this? So we'll pick up next week and we'll expand a little bit more on the journeys and then we'll jump right into the, the first chapter of Ephesians. Let's go ahead and close the prayer. Lord... Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for, for Paul and his incredible faithfulness, his perseverance in that faith uh, against incredible trial. Lord, uh, that you uh, had worked in him from, uh, from a child to the time of his death to be uh, the right one to bring this message, to record it such that we could uh, read it today and understand what what you're doing in our presence, Lord. We want to look for your fingerprints in our world today. And we can look at your fingerprints in Paul's world through the letter to the Ephesians. And we just ask that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to that. Lord, we ask that you would be with us this week and that we are living in a world not too far 
uh, different um, morally than uh, the place that Paul was in Ephesus when he was there. Um, that we have the very problems of the world present today that were present then. And in fact, it may have progressed to a worse uh, condition. Even though we like to think that man is getting better, we know that that's not the case. Um, Lord, so we just ask that you would protect us in this place where it's so easy to go astray. That you would open our eyes and our hearts to that which the enemy is doing to capture us and pull us in and disable us. Lord, that you would protect and that you would provide for us in this this place of um, challenge. And Lord, uh, finally, we thank you for what you've done for us, your service to us. We ask that we can be worthy of that, worthy of the calling um, which you've put in our life. Lord, we thank you for all this. We ask that you be with uh, Rob as he speaks this morning. Um, we just ask that you uh, be with this, this body. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all this in your name we pray. Amen.